All right. Well, I sent out an email earlier, kind of uh, warning the fact that we have to move on from the book of Acts. I always love studying Acts, and it's such a, a refreshing and a re... Um, I don't know. It just straightens everything out. It straightens my purpose in life out. Right? We, are, we are part of the church of God. We are a church-planting church. And Acts is our book. Acts is the book of the church of God, but we, we are a people of Acts. And I love the way that Acts ends, by the way. And this isn't part of my teaching, but I love the way that it ends. Because it seems to be building towards some, just like the book of Luke, some real climax at the end. All we have is a shipwreck, and then they find themselves in Rome. And we don't find out what happens to Paul. Right? Because in a lot of ways, that's not the point. Paul's not the, the, the main character in the story. The gospel and what God is doing in the earth through the gospel, that's the main point. And so Paul, yeah, he, he makes his way to Rome and he fulfills his journey, but it's the gospel that continues on after the book of Acts. And he continues to proclaim the gospel without hindrance. And we find ourselves, I, I just love that, right? That Luke delivered this book to the church, to Theophilus, and we find ourselves as recipients and we are, you know, I think there's a church planting network called the Acts 29 network. But there's some truth to that, right? We are continuing to live in this story. And I love the open-ended nature of the conclusion of Acts. Um, so tonight, you know, it seems daunting, but really the way that Luke has written Acts, uh, there's one big final journey that, that encompasses the whole second half of the book. And we're going to cover that uh, in, in a broad stroke tonight. Um, and I'm going, to pr- I'm going to read one verse, uh, and then I'm going to pray again, because um, I really do believe that this is a significant, it's a significant book for Acts, but this is a significant night for us in terms of the word that's on my heart uh, to share with us as a church. Um. It's Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Father, I pray that you bless the teaching of your word tonight, that you would anoint this time. God, I pray that your word would go forth unhindered tonight. Unhindered by me, a frail vessel, and by all of us as uh, frail listeners and hearers, easily distracted people. Lord, I pray that there would be an unhindered ministry of the word tonight in speaker and in hearer, and that you would build up your church. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, so this this last portion of Acts, I said it was about the the trials of Paul, but in, in a broader sense, it's about Paul's journey. And as much as I hate the inspirational living and TED Talk and self-help gauze that has come over the the idea of journey, um, which, by the way, I did did a a quick YouTube search of my journey just to see what would come up. And it was it's it's quite entertaining. Uh, People's journey of self-discovery, the journey to self-love, a journey from two to 20 pull-ups, I found. A journey from a women's bicycle to a Mercedes-Benz. Some get-rich-quick guy. Um, Several, several TED Talks about various journeys. Uh, The journey to waist-length hair. One one woman was on there. All about the... So, it's worn-out phrase, our journey. But... It's the way that Luke chooses to tell the gospel. And so we we have to take what we're given, despite what our world has done to it. 
So as difficult as it is to, to distance ourselves from kind of the narcissistic sense of, I want to tell you my journey. Basically, I just want to talk about myself at length. Um, if we're going to le- learn from Luke the most important things that he wants us to, to learn from the life of Jesus and the life of his apostles in the, in the book of Acts, we need to think in terms of journey. Okay? We need to think in terms of journey. It's clearly one of Luke's favorite motifs or recurring themes. Um, Luke opens up his story with a journey, the journey of the Holy Family to uh, Bethlehem, journey uh, back home to Nazareth, the journey on which Mary and Joseph discover that Jesus is not with them and they have to go back to Jerusalem. Um, the, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem which begins in chapter 9 and runs all the way through chapter 19 and forms the, the main section, the, the, the biggest chunk of the book, is Jesus is, he set his face like a flint to journey toward Jerusalem. We have the walk to Emmaus to end the book of Luke, where Jesus joins them on the journey to Emmaus, and he reveals to them slowly uh, who he is and what the scripture is all about. And then Acts is all about journeys particularly as we get on into the later chapters as Paul's missionary journeys. They're going from place to place. Paul's also on a journey when he, he's on a journey to Damascus when he gets knocked on his face and blinded and, and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So there are so many journeys in Luke. There's the journey in Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. There's the journey, there's the, the journey of the friend. A, a friend has come to me on a journey. And he needs bread, and I don't have any bread to set before him. There's the journey of the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the Good Samaritan, or the man who falls in with robbers. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So much of, much of Luke's writing is structured around the idea of journey. And so this, this portion of Acts is no different. It, it is structured, in the verse I just read, Paul resolved in the spirit to go on a journey. And he knows, the, he knows the route. He knows the destination. And he says, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. This sounds exactly like the way that Jesus sets out on his journey to Jerusalem as well. In Luke 9.51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and then he sends disciples ahead of him. Here it says that Paul resolves in his spirit to journey to Jerusalem and then to Rome, and he sends two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, ahead of him. He's clearly walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Why is this important in a teaching, as I said, we're talking about the trials of Paul. Why is it important to spend so much time talking about journey? It's because Paul's journey, his understanding of the path set before him, provide the necessary context for us to understand how he approached his trials, how he went through them. You can't understand Paul's trials and his hardships and his afflictions, and you definitely can't, stand, can't understand his response and his coping with and going through those trials and afflictions without understanding the journey that he saw himself on. And so Paul sets out on his final journey here in chapter 19, and this is before, he still has a lot of work to do. He still stays for quite a while in Asia. He doesn't immediately leave, but he has resolved, I'm going somewhere. I'm I'm here for now. There's work to do now. But once, that done, once that's done, I know where I'm going. And there are longer stops along the way. I don't know if you notice that. Paul's always, he always knows where he's going, but he also knows when to stay and hang out. And it doesn't alter his focus or his direction. It doesn't change his, his final destination. He knows when to stay and he knows when to go. Same thing with Jesus, by the way. Jesus knew when to stop and listen to someone who was wanting his attention. He knew when to just keep going and say, if you want to follow me, follow me, we're going. Along the way, in this final journey, after he, he 
he resolves in his spirit to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. His interactions with the church and the disciples are, they carry with it the sense of finality. That this is maybe the last time, this is surely the last time he's going to see a lot of these people. And he's making extra sure that the, the churches in his care are ready uh, for his absence. Okay? This is a lot like what Jesus did when he was preparing to be taken up. He began to tell his disciples all the things they needed for the days ahead. Paul is telling his churches, he's, he's training his churches, entrusting them with the truth, and saying, here's the things about Jesus you need to remember heading into this stage. And the emphasis here in, in his interactions with the, the churches are on nurturing and encouraging and strengthening the churches. We don't often think of Paul as a nurturer, right? He's sort of a pioneer, a groundbreaker, a, a brash former legalist, right? You don't want to mess with Paul. He was shrewd. He knew his stuff. But he, he had such a heart to nurture and found and care for the churches that he was starting. He did not just blow in and out of town. He stayed as long as he needed to for his teaching to take root and for that church to be, in his estimation, well-founded. Nurture, encouragement, strengthening. It says, um, chapter 20, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. On this final journey, he is leaving them, he is strengthening them, he is establishing them. The, the farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, which is just one of the best, the best sections, I think, in all of the New Testament. If you just had that inside of you, if you had Paul's heart in what he is saying to the Ephesian elders inside of you, you would never lose sight of the goal. But that speech is all about, I'm, I'm leaving you and I'm entrusting you to the grace of God. Chapter 21, verse 5. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship. And they returned home. There's this sense of departure. Finality. And then he gets to Jerusalem, which is one of his destinations. Jerusalem, then Rome. He gets to Jerusalem, and even there, you know, there's this prophetic sense, kind of this foreboding sense about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And some people are encouraging him, no, don't go. You know, this, there is bad, <laughs> there's, there's a bad spiritual sense. I have a bad feeling about this, they're saying, in the words of Star Wars. I have a bad feeling about this, Paul. Don't go. There's a prophet named um, Agabus. He comes down, and he has this, there's a dramatic scene where he takes Paul's belt and he binds his hand. He says, this is how the man who owns this belt is going to be bound when he comes to Jerusalem. Verse 12 of chapter 21, when he, we heard this, we and the people. So Luke's implicating himself. We and the people. This started to be a bad sign. We and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Must have been a lot like what Peter said to Jesus after Jesus was saying, the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and on the third day rise. And Peter begins to rebuke him. No, no, this will never happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Here Paul says something not quite as, not quite as rebuke-driven. But he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. The guys, hey, hold on a second. I'm on a journey. I know where I'm going. I know how it ends up. You're all worried that it includes suffering. I knew that way back at the beginning. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'd be in pretty good company, guys. Hey, don't we want to be like Jesus? What's more like the Jesus than to journey to Jerusalem and die? Paul's like, what, what, is all this, what is all this weeping? What is all this mourning? This is the life that, 
This is, there could be no greater thing, right? Come on, guys. It would be like, you know, some obsessive fan of Kobe Bryant wanting to go fly in a helicopter and crash because he'd be just like Kobe Bryant. I just want to be, I want to live like him and I want to die like him. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Because that was Paul's heart all along. Let the will of the Lord be done. Paul was not operating out of a sense of getting the most out of life. Paul was not operating out of a sense of living his best life now. Paul was not operating out of a sense of establish my legacy, maximize the number of converts that I am responsible for. Paul was, Paul was dead set on doing the will of God in response to the calling that God had placed on his life. And he knew that what could be, what could be more in line with that calling than to journey to Jerusalem and die. So yeah, even if I die there, so be it. He really wants to be like Jesus. A lot of people want to want to be like Jesus. <laughs> I wish I could say that I really want to be like Jesus. Paul actually wants to be like Jesus. He wants to go to Jerusalem and die. He wants to suffer. Because he'll be with Jesus when he does. So he's arrested in Jerusalem. Very similar accusation that they had with, against Stephen. You know, the Jerusalem Jews, they were, a, they were a unique bunch. They were a stubborn bunch. They, were the, they, were kind of the, they had home field advantage in Jerusalem. And uh, it was really hard. It says that there were thousands of those who believed of the Jews. But they believed that you had to become a Jew. Right? This was just the film. We, we need everyone to be a Jew. So they weren't Jerusalem council type believers. Um, so he's arrested in the temple. And I just want to point this out because if there's ever a verse that described the spirit of our current age, it's chapter 21, verse 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, <laughs> just that, just that right there. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another, and he couldn't hear the facts because of the uproar. Right? I'll just point that out. That, that pretty much describes the, uh, the state of, of uh, discourse in our current age. Someone's shouting, another person's shouting, and meanwhile the facts are the real victims. So he has a series of, I mean, he kind of bounces around from place to place. Right? And he, he evades execution <laughs> kind of by the skin of his teeth. Because he's Paul and he's shrewd. He knows what he's doing. He knows the right thing to say. But you notice, he's not trying to acquit himself. He's trying to take the next step on his journey. Right? He never tries to just... He, he could have gotten out. And even Agrippa says, you know, this man could have been freed if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. He never just tries to escape outright and to be acquitted. He only says the things that progress him along the journey that he knows he's to take. So there's the tribune with the, with, in Jerusalem with the Jews. Then he goes before the chief priests and the council, and they got to hear the story again. And each time there's a little bit of a different uh, spin to the story or emphasis in the story. Um, then they say, well, we, we, need to, we need to go to, you know, he appeals to, to Caesar, or he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And they say, oh, well, this isn't a matter for the Jewish courts. This is a legal issue for the, you know, the actual government here. So they get to send him to Felix. There's a conspiracy by the Jews to kill him on the way to, to, to go see Felix. He has uh, some centurions learn about it, and they give him an, ex, an escort. You know, Paul gets a motorcade on the way to see Felix. It's pretty cool. Um, take that, conspirators. And then uh, Felix, you know, he has this exchange with Felix, and Felix is kind of intrigued, actually. And he knows some things about the way, is what they call it. And uh, so, but Felix doesn't really do anything. You know, he's kind of intrigued, but he also is waiting for Paul to bribe him, <laughs> it says. 
He's waiting for Paul to kind of pay him off. And it's two years and Paul never pays him off. And Paul's just kind of hanging out. And eventually Felix is succeeded by Festus. And then uh, Agrippa and Bernice are visiting Festus. And so he says, hey, I got this really interesting case. This guy named Paul. Um, and he, they kinda, he, he asked for some consulting from Agrippa to understand, hey, what do I do with this Paul guy? You know, this is a tricky case. There's a lot of different forces at work here. There's the Jews. There's the Roman citizenship issue. And he hasn't really committed any crimes. But if we don't do something, then the Jews are going to rise up. And know, how do we do it? How do we navigate this tricky political situation? So Agrippa says, all right, bring him here. And it's at this point that Paul really gets to give his full defense. And he kind of starts from the beginning. And he starts with his conversion. He starts with the the Damascus Road experience. And here's here's what he says. Let's, uh, Let's go there. Chapter 26. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. So what he's saying is, I'm not a liberal. (laughs) I'm actually doing what the Old Testament says. I'm not trying to discard the customs. I'm not an anti-traditionalist. In fact, I'm trying to be a better, more faithful traditionalist than even those of the strictest party of the Pharisees. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews. I have found the, the heart of Torah. And I found the one to whom it points. And I'm full of hope now because I've seen him. And it's for this that the Jews want to accuse me. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Which was something he threw in kind of like a bone to the dogs to get everything worked up when he was before the chief priests and the council. It was, <laughs> he, knew, he knows how to get the ears of uh, Rome, appeal to Caesar, appeal to the law. And he knows how to get the ears of the Jews to start a theological debate. Right? <laughs> I myself was convinced... Now, this is where he starts his testimony. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Guys, I was one of you. I was was doing, I know what you're feeling because I felt those very same things. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just an amazing testimony slash proclamation of the essence of the gospel, all in one. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, here's where I want us to really listen. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me. Um, So I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm appealing to the prophets. I'm appealing to Moses. This is what they were saying. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, Festus says, Paul, you've been reading too many books. (laughs) You've lost me, Paul. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he asks, he gets, Paul's, Paul's so shameless here, right? He's very brazen. Hey, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets, right? I know you believe. And Agrippa goes, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul, what are you trying to do here? You're trying to pull one over on me. And Paul says, I don't care whether it's short or long. I want everyone, you, Agrippa, and everybody listening to become as I am. To become as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> you can do without these chains. And their conclusion is that the man has done nothing to deserve imprisonment. So this is the man, this is the man that can write things like Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He rattles off his achievements in Judaism. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Paul was on mission. He knew where he was going. He knew what his destination was. It was fellowship with Jesus. And every choice that he made and every trial that he faced, he viewed in light of that. That's why you can write things like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Start verse 21. Whatever anyone else thinks to dare to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. <laughs> I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, 
in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You know, in each of his letters, he says, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. He really loved his churches. He didn't leave them. He carried them with him wherever he went. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And then he goes on to talk about the vision that he received and then the thorn in his flesh to keep him humble in light of that vision. Chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, after he pleads with the Lord to take away the thorn in his flesh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. And actually, that means well-pleased. It's the same word that, that the Father uses over the... You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. For the sake of Christ, then, I am well pleased with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because all these things just show my weakness. But what happens when I'm weak? Then I am strong. Then the grace of God appears. Then the miraculous starts to work. Then the resurrection power begins to show forth. Paul's trials, both his actual legal trials and all the things he just rattled off, are just points along the way. The focus is always on the journey with Paul. Always on the journey. Journeys have a beginning, a middle, and an end. A beginning is a direction. The middle is progress. It's motion, movement. And the end is the destination. Paul knew where he started. (laughs) He told Agrippa, I'll tell you where this all started. I was on one journey, (laughs) and I got knocked on my face. And I got sent on a totally different journey. He knew where he was going. Literally to Jerusalem, and then on to Rome. But in all of that, he knew that his destination really is to suffer while proclaiming the gospel, right? That was, part of his, that was part of the beginning. You remember back when Acts chapter 9, Jesus speaks to him. Actually, I think he says this to Ananias. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew that suffering, yes, Jerusalem, yes, Rome, was his physical destination, but he knew that his destination ultimately was to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's what, that, that was his journey. And he was so excited to get there. So that whenever there was some sort of trial, whenever there was some sort of suffering, he said, I'm moving. I'm moving on up. To likeness with Jesus. To fellowship with Jesus. He said that he counted all things as loss. And he wasn't talking about sin. He wasn't talking about whether well, it was persecution of the church. But he's talking about being an excellent person. That's what he counted loss. Well, then what was he doing with his life after that? 
He was pursuing, he was being obedient, as he says to Agrippa, obedient to the heavenly vision. What was the heavenly vision? You have to suffer for my name. You are going to suffer for my name. That was the vision he received when he was blind for three days. That's what, it, that's what God told Ananias he was going to reveal to Paul during those three days. And then the scales fell from his eyes and he set his heart. He resolved in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. But really it was to pick up his cross. To suffer for the name of Jesus. Paul's entire direction in life was governed by one thing. Obeying the heavenly vision. That was it. That was the beginning, the middle, and the end for him. It all changed. And I love that it changed while he was on one journey. He took him from the complete opposite kind of life (laughs) and set him in the in the opposite direction. He was persecuting Jesus. And then he changed to the polar opposite of being persecuted for Jesus. So what's on my heart for us is just to understand the life of a disciple. Jesus calls disciples on a journey. Right? And it's a journey to join him in going to the cross. Okay? We, like Paul, know our destination right up front. Luke gives us... Just picture after picture of Jesus' call to discipleship. It's very clear in the book of Luke. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself... Take up his cross, and Luke adds the crucial word daily, and follow me. Every day there's a cross. Every day there is somewhere that your will would probably not do it in God's way. Nevertheless, you say, I will be obedient. Obedience is where we take up our cross. Obedience is where our will is conformed to the will of God. So the life of a disciple is not a life of comfort. We know that. It's not a life of control. It's not a life where you're in control of what's happening to you. Right? The the, the prophets told Paul, hey, you're going to be bound. There were a lot of things that happened to Paul that were outside of his control. That whole list of things. Would would he have chosen to be shipwrecked? Probably not. Did he want to receive those lashes? No. Paul was not in control of what happened to him at the hands of other people. It's not a life of passivity, of remaining in one state. It's not a life of inertia where you just kind of cruise... (laughs) And just cruise through life. And so I just want to say that that we all have been... I mean, I I hate that it sounds so so trite. But you've got to hear this in the words of Luke. We have all been set on a journey. You were going in one direction. And it was the opposite of where God wanted you to go. And he turned you around and through repentance, which is what that process really means, is the process by which we stop going in our own direction and turn to the direction that God wants us to go. Through our conversion, we have been set, we haven't been just transferred over into like a a different eternal state, right? We haven't just been, boop, okay, you were in the red, now you're in the green. Right? You were traveling one direction. Now you're traveling another direction. Okay? You started when Jesus brought you to repentance. And now you're in this middle portion and you have a destination. 
And a lot of us try all the things that happen on this journey, on the life of a disciple. We act like we're still going in this direction. We come up against a problem, we go, something's wrong. And we try to fix the problem. And it's really hard to fix a problem. Why are these problems so hard? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. When you're traveling in that direction, everything is against the grain. Problems are the biggest thing in your life. Problems control your life. Difficulties, trials, sleepless nights, whatever, it, whatever form it takes. It's not just persecution, although it includes persecution. It's also just the regular difficulty of bearing more and more responsibility in life. Of, of caring for children, raising children, of navigating teenage emotions, of living another decade with the person that you committed your life with. Right? Of finding harmony there, of finding oneness, of bearing with the people that God has placed you with in your home group even though they still don't understand this about themselves, and it's still a problem, and it still annoys me. Those things start to happen, and we go, something's wrong, let's fix it, so we can go on our merry way. No, that, that's like, <laughs> that becomes a, the life of a zealot. That becomes you trying to imprison everyone around you Lock them away because they don't see it the way you see it. It persecutes the church. It persecutes Jesus. Instead, Jesus sets us on the path of of affliction, of suffering. But it's also the path of resurrection. And that's, that's really the secret. Because on this path, you experience problems like everyone else does in life. And you try and fix them, and you can't. And it just kind of stays in that cycle. And it's just pain management. It's just pain management for the rest of your life. We're going to have all this painful stuff, but TGIF. You live, you live leisure activity to leisure activity. You live pleasure to pleasure. You live quiet night to quiet night. And that's what you live for. And you just can't wait to get through these difficult things because... I don't feel right when I'm in the midst of them. It doesn't affirm who I want to be, who I thought I would be. I just want to, you know, there's many parents of young infants in this room. I just get rid of through this phase, <laughs> please. Just get to the place where they stop crying at night, right? At least. I, I just, I'm going to live full night's sleep to full night's sleep. But trials will increase. Trials will always increase. Whether it's due to just life, the course of life, or real opposition. Because there's real opposition that we face too. And so here's, here's the point. Unless we understand the journey that we're on, we will not face our trials the way we need to. Trials will become the thing in our life. And we will live our life in relationship in light of trials and managing trials. But that's not the life of a disciple. Paul says, I am content. I am well pleased with all the stuff. And you know what your stuff is. You know the stuff that just bothers you. That's hard for you. That you'd rather not. (laughs) You know that stuff. It's different for everyone. God has called you to to head into that stuff. And to not see it as a hindrance, something between you and what you want to do, but to see it as the destination. These are the things that shape us into the image of Jesus. But they won't if we're still walking in this direction. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're just kicking against the goads if you don't see the journey that you're on, if you haven't received the heavenly vision, if you're not being obedient to the heavenly vision, which is you will suffer 
for my name. That's not just a call to Paul. He had a specific form of that calling. But Jesus said very clearly, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. In other words, come suffer for my name. So unless we understand the journey that we're on, we'll not face our trials in the way that we need to, which is a way that leads to progress and maturity rather than just a lifetime of kicking against the pricks, the goads of our life. Jesus said, it's hard for you to do that, Paul. You keep down the road you're, gonna, you're, you're on, nothing's going to get any better ever. It's going to get worse. You're going to get more frustrated. You're going to become more of a murderous monster than you already are. The more you try and fix your problems to get through them, it ends up just creating more of that same problem in your life. But if you have counted, if you really have seen and you count all things loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord, of having an intimate fellowship with him day to day in every single happening in your life. See, that's what Paul saw. Oh, I can walk with him. I can walk with him, and yes, I can suffer with him and also rise with him. And so that's worth it. Everything is worth it. All of that is worth it. Every trial is worth it. Every hardship is worth it. I'm content. I'm well pleased. So if you, are, if you have received the heavenly vision, you understand the road that you're on, and you're not confused when things feel hard and they feel uncomfortable. And in fact, you begin to welcome it Not because you enjoy it, but because you know that it conforms you more into the image of Jesus. And that's a completely different way of living life. And so I I just want to say, we have, you know, I've been thinking in terms of decades a lot. Mike had turned 10 this week. We've had a decade. You know, we're sort of in the new decade, depending on how you consider decades. Some people say it's 2020. Some people say it's 2021. Whatever. But I'm thinking in terms of decades which is what I try and do anyway in my life at the beginning of a year, I think in terms of the next decade, not just the next few months, but what are we doing? How are we, what's our vision? What are are we being obedient to? And over the next decade, we're going to grow a lot as a church. We are going to grow a lot as a church. And with that, trials are going to multiply among us. And... My commitment to you as a pastor is to always point you toward this fact. That Jesus calls anyone who would to come after him, take up their cross and follow him. And that any, any place of difficulty or suffering or trial, the first thing to ask about it is, how can it make me more like Jesus? How is this making me more like Jesus? How is my frustration with my wife making me more like Jesus? What do I need to learn? How do I go into the ground and die? What is my difficulty with X child, with this neighbor? What is it teaching me about how to be more like Jesus? And so my commitment to you in counseling, in pastoring, is to remind you of that. And if you are willing, and if you are able to see that and receive that, we will get through and we will rejoice in many trials. If you still are going down some sort of road, some sort of journey that you have started for yourself, some vision that you have of yourself, and you're trying to journey toward that, let me tell you, it is hard to kick against the goads. I have, not, I have no life hacks for you. I have no way to escape the hardship. Nor does Scripture, by the way. <laughs> nor does Jesus. Nor does anyone else. Who's not trying to sell you a bill of goods? We have 
as our inheritance, the fellowship of the suffering, and the power of the resurrection. Resurrection never takes place unless a death has occurred. And so another way of putting it is this. I will never shield us from death. I will only remind us that there is the resurrection. And that's my commitment to to you. And I devote myself to live that kind of life. And listen, there will be more chuckle-worthy trials, you know, the normal child training stuff. There will be hard things. We may be in the middle of a church service and someone might fall from the third-story window and die. And we have no idea what to do. Right? Right in the middle of a great, (laughs) but kind of long, you know, it's great, boom, dead. Things like that happen in the church. There will be sudden tragedy among us. There will be severe illness. Death may happen in the next decade. I don't know. We can't escape trials because it's very hard (laughs) to kick against those goads. But we can pursue Jesus. And we can cling to him. And we can remain obedient to the heavenly vision. Wherever it takes us. However many stripes it causes us on our backs, however many lashes we end up with, however many uh, sleepless nights, shipwrecks, right? And none of us, obviously, Paul's point is, none of us are ever going to get to that level. But even he said, even at this level, man, the more you have it, the more you, <laughs> the more you get into this, the more you realize all this stuff. It's making me more like Jesus. And it's allowing his grace to come into my life in greater degrees. So imagine if Paul had had lived the rest of his life trying to avoid conflict. (laughs) Trying to avoid pain. Just that. Like, I I don't like pain. Most of us don't like pain. I would say all of us don't like pain, right? How many different kinds of pain medication are out there? Even just like a minor headache. Give me something for this. We don't like pain. Some psychologists even theorize that pain, that pain avoidance is the number one driver of any decision that we make. We basically live our lives as one big pain avoidance. We buy things to avoid pain. We eat things to avoid pain. <laughs> we don't like pain. Imagine if Paul lived his life trying to avoid pain. We certainly wouldn't know his name. Right? And, he would, and, and Jesus would not have been glorified through his life. He might have had a, a decent, enjoyable life on his terms, but we wouldn't know who he is, and God wouldn't have received glory. So that's the question. What do you want to do? Do you want his name to be the one that people remember through your life? Or your name? And uh, so that's the... As we close Acts, as we come out of our time, that's what I want to call us back to. We are disciples. Just like Paul was so excited about walking in the very footsteps of Jesus. He was so caught up in the fact of being with Jesus and like Jesus that all those things just didn't even matter to him. I'm sure it hurt in the moment, but he's, he called them in another place light momentary afflictions. They're working for us an eternal weight of glory. All right, so that's, that's what was on my heart. And I hope, I hope what God wanted to speak to you in your heart, uh, I hope the Holy Spirit did that and continues to do that uh, as, we, as we close out our time in Acts. Um, you might be kicking against the goats. The frustration in your life might be because, might not be because of the thing you think Right? I got a problem. I need to get rid of this problem. It's frustrating me. I need to figure this thing out. It's frustrating me. Your problem could be you're, you're not on the journey. You're on a different journey, and it's your own journey. Your end destination is something different than what the heavenly vision would dictate. And so that's the thing. You, live, you either live your life in 
pursuit of your own destination or you live your life in obedience to the heavenly vision. And obedience hears and does. And that's the righteousness that Paul was talking about. It comes by faith. The righteousness of God, which is by faith. That is what faith is. I hear and I do. And that's the righteousness that God calls us to, that Jesus enables us to have, to hear and do. Because we know that even if death happens, resurrection has defeated death. And so we can do, we can obey whatever Jesus tells us to do. We can abound, we can have nothing. Paul said, whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content and do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So just like Paul says after he rattles that off to the Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Because he says, you guys, (laughs) I'm not your problem. Examine yourselves. Look at everything. Look at, look at all that's happened to me. And I could easily complain, but I don't. In fact, I rejoice in that stuff. You examine yourselves and your problems. <laughs> I say that because Paul got pretty sarcastic in second Corinthians. He's pretty fed up at that point. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. What journey are you on? You can all bent out of shape about the wrong things, Paul says. And I encourage you, go read, the, you read all of 2 Corinthians for, for that matter, but, but at least the, the last few chapters. And you can hear Paul's heart. He's exhorting them. Guys, you've got you to get it. Once you get it, you don't have these kinds of fights. You don't have these kinds of arguments. You are on the journey, and you are obedient to heavenly vision. And you embrace all kinds of suffering and justice. You don't try and get out of it. You don't try and defend yourself. You don't try and come out on top. You just stay on the road, obedient, just like Jesus was, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is our Lord. This is who we follow. This is whose name we take when we call ourselves Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. The last thing I'll say is this. Um, I really, for a long time, I didn't know what we were going to name our church. And I, I, I wanted it to be uh, Christian Fellowship of the Cross. Because it was just so foundational. I think the first time we had our own little church service, I talked about the cross. And I, this was, was really on my heart that we'd be a people of the cross. And so I wanted to name our church. And I came to Emmanuel because um, I didn't want the only thing or the, the thing that's up front to be the cross. I want it to be that God's with us. And we go to the cross because he's with us and we know he's with us. And so I just want to encourage you. You're called to go to the cross, but we are together following Jesus going to the cross. And we're on the road together. And as we do that, he is manifested among us. God is with us. He told his disciples to go Go on their journey. And I am with you, he said, to the very end of the age. So I want to call you to the cross, but I want to remind you that we're going there together. We're with you. We're with each other. You're with me. I'm thankful. And uh, just remind us, sort of a, a belated New Year's sermon. New Decades sermon. This is who we are, and this is where we're headed. Um, and Jesus is with us. Somebody just texted me. Man, instant feedback. JP. Oh, that's pretty long. I'll read that later. All right. It's not quite midnight, but some of you might be close to falling out of the third story window. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you come and seal this truth in our hearts. Lord, that you give us uh, or remind us, Lord, of the heavenly vision. That the call to discipleship would be as clear as ever in our hearts. That our approach to the challenges of each day would be as clear as ever in our hearts, Lord. To become like you. 
to fellowship with you, to know the power of the resurrection, and to share in your sufferings. Lord, make us truly a church of disciples, those on the road with you, those headed toward the cross with you, so that your name would be exalted. And so, Lord, that the, that the Gentiles would glorify you. Lord, that the peoples around us, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, even in our own city, Lord, would receive the promise. It's for you and your children and all who are far off. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. God, I pray that we would see many saved. Lord, I pray that we would face many trials uh, to experience you in those trials and to know the power of the resurrection in the midst of all of it. Jesus, be glorified. That's our only prayer. Jesus, be glorified in our lives. You're worthy. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.